Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. We'll get to Titus in a moment, but I'm going to begin by reading out an email that I received quite recently. Good afternoon, Tim. My name is Tony with Vet IQ Staffing, and I saw you may be interested in relief work with us. Don't worry, I'm not planning on quitting. Here at Vet IQ Staffing, our mission is to provide a customized solution for each veterinarian we partner with. Now, it would have to be pretty customized for me. Uh, for a start, I'd have to learn how to be a vet. Secondly, I'd need to get over my phobia of almost every single animal there is. And thirdly, they offer travel relief a bit later in the email. I don't think they realize how expensive that would be. They're a company that are in the United States. That's going to cost them quite a lot. But hey, if I get free travel... Obviously, I didn't keep reading. Uh, it is an email that was addressed to Tim Shepard, uh, but was clearly looking for a different Tim Shepard. And those of you who've been around for a while will know I get a lot of those emails. But imagine it had said something slightly different. Uh, imagine if instead it had said, Good afternoon, Tim. My name is Tony. And I saw you may be interested in relief work with us. Our mission is to provide a solution to fix the world. And we found out how to make the world a better place. You'd probably think it was a bit of a scam, wouldn't you? You'd be looking for that bit later in the email when they were fishing for your account details or for some money. But there'd be a part of you, wouldn't there, that'd be interested in reading on, maybe at least to the next line. Oh, what if it said this? A good afternoon, Tim. This is Tony. And God has told me how to fix the world. Well, then you'd probably be sure it was a scam. But if there was a chance it was true, just a possibility that God had genuinely told him how to make this world a better place, how to deal with all of the deceit and the violence and the greed, how to make people loving and patient and self-controlled, even if this letter was actually intended for someone else, this email. Well, then you'd want to read on, wouldn't you? Change the names, and that's a summary of what we're looking at this evening. Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul. And God has told me how to fix the world. Uh, again, it's communication that's intended for someone else. Unless your name is Titus. I don't think Titus is here this evening. And there is someone on the student world called Titus, but I don't think he's here. Sorry if I've missed you. Your name might be Titus. It's not addressed to you, is it? This is a Titus who was living 2,000 years ago. A church leader in Crete. Uh, it's intended for someone else. But the person writing this is the Apostle Paul, and when he says God has told me, he's telling the truth. It's intended for someone else, but when Paul says God has told me how to fix the world, you want to read on, don't you? Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul, and God has told me how to fix the world. That's my paraphrase. But I hope you're interested to know what Paul has to say. And we don't even need to feel guilty about opening up someone's mail. I'm not in the habit of opening mail. My flatmate will be relieved to know. But it, we don't have to feel guilty about opening this because Paul actually intends that other people read it. Just look on the right-hand page there, bottom of the page, very last verse of the book. Grace be with you all. 
Which is to say that, that Paul is writing this to one guy, a guy called Titus, but he expects a whole bunch of people to read it. Because when he tells Titus how to fix the world, when he tells a church leader how to fix the world, it's profoundly relevant to all of us. At times, the book of Titus, which we're looking at this summer, is going to feel like an extended job description for church leaders. But as it turns out, that is a job description that every single one of us needs to hear. But actually, Paul starts by talking about himself. You might know that when Paul extends his introduction to himself at the beginning of a letter, it's worth paying attention to. Some of us have studied Romans this year. At the very beginning of Romans, it's a very long introduction to Paul, and it's worth paying attention to. The same is true here. He starts by talking about his own work, and there's three particular things we're going to focus on. Firstly, Paul's is a ministry about truth. A ministry about truth. Let me read again from verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It's just a one sentence, but it's, well, it's not even a whole sentence. There's more to come, and yet there's a huge amount going on there. But can you see what Paul is committed to? The faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Probably not a surprise to us that the great apostle to the Gentiles, the guy who was commissioned to take the Christian message to the nations, that he should want people to believe. But he wants people to believe and to cling to the truth, to know the truth, such that he can say he is as committed to their faith as he is to their knowledge of the truth. Paul is a faith and truth man. And the reason he really cares about the truth, uh, the reason that it matters so much to him is that the knowledge of the truth, he tells us, accords with godliness. Truth fits with godliness. Now, my guess is some of you are thinking, that's not very radical, Tim. Truth and godliness, they're friends, that's okay. That's not a big, big exciting thing, is it? But in the context of Crete, that was a huge thing for Paul to say. Because Crete in the first century was not a godly place. I look down at 1 verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy, gluttons. That is what they said about themselves. That's pretty bad, isn't it? And then Paul, the inspired apostle, his review of that, verse 13, this testimony is true. Oh, can you imagine him saying that about us? Actually, I can imagine him saying that about London. And just like for London, there were lots of different solutions people had to dealing with this. Some pretending it wasn't an issue. Lying's not that bad, really, is it? Others trying to legislate to deal with it. More police, more laws. The particular challenge for Titus was those who were going around the church saying the solution was to be more religious. How do we deal with the ungodliness of Crete? Let's be more religious. And so when Paul says that it's knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, he's not just saying these two things fit together. He is saying that. But he's saying that it's truth that leads to godliness. He's saying that the way to fix the world, even the deceitful, violent, greedy people of first century Crete, is to teach them the truth. I'm not saying it's just some sort of equation. I put truth in one end and out the other end pops godliness. Of course there's more. As we'll see in the book, it is a, a godliness is a work of God's spirit. We need to pray. It is a work of faith. We need to believe. Indeed, it is a work. It takes effort. 
Uh, Nor is this assuming that Christians will be perfectly godly. If only we hear the truth taught every Sunday. You only need to be in a church a short while to know that we are all a work in progress. Even while God works through his truth to transform us, we're still sinful. We still get stuff wrong. But it would be possible to get so buried in all of those caveats that we miss the huge significance of these few words. Paul says he's all about the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. If you want to see people grow in godliness, if you want to see the wickedness of our world brought to an end, if you want the world transformed, then all of our prayer and our faith and our effort needs to go into teaching people the truth. A week or so ago, I went to go and visit Lachlan in Parliament. And we had a look around lots of different parts of Parliament. It's quite exciting for me. I don't get to spend time in those hallowed corridors. But we spent some time in the public gallery of the House of Lords because I'd not been there before and I thought it was worth it. And it happened to be that they were sitting, which I think is their way of saying... Well, some of them are standing. They're sort of talking about stuff. In fact, they were talking about the government's illegal migration bill, which has been yo-yoing between the House of Lords and the House of Commons recently. It's been in the news a lot. Maybe you heard about it. But we happened to be there when they were talking about the amendment by the Archbishop of Canterbury that sought to commit the government to producing a long-term strategy. It was the Archbishop's attempt to constrain the government to be compassionate, welcoming, loving, to be like Jesus. It was an attempt to make them godly in some sense. Now, whatever you think of the politics of that, that commitment to compassion is a beautiful thing, isn't it? But it occurred to me while I was sitting there that the most useful thing the Archbishop of Canterbury can do to reform UK society is not what he contributes to the House of Lords, but what he teaches in the pulpit. I found myself praying while I was sitting there. I don't know if Lockham realized I was praying while this was going on. I was praying for the archbishop, not for his politics, but for his preaching, that he would teach the truth. Some of you are thinking, oh, classic Tim, always banging on about the truth. Classic St. Helens, they're always about the truth. Can you see why we might be? This is a central plank of Paul's ministry. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. This is God's chosen instrument to change the world. What else are we going to bang on about? It's why when we finish, we're going to sing another song about truth. There is one gospel on which I stand. But of course, that begs the question, what is the truth that Paul is devoted to? What is this truth? Well, that takes us to point two. Now, point two, a ministry about hope. Let me read again from verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. The truth that transforms this world is the good news of our salvation, as he put here, the hope of eternal life. And lots of religions will talk about eternal life and salvation, and they'll talk about it in the context of trying to make people godly. If you change the way you live, if you become more godly, if you do enough to deserve it, you'll get eternal life, lots of religions say. But that's not what Paul is saying here. When he says here that the truth that transforms the world concerns the hope of eternal life, he's not talking about trying to earn eternal life. 
he's saying, he's talking about motivating people by the gift of eternal life. If I can put it like this, eternal life isn't given to those who've changed enough. Those who have changed, a change comes to those who have been given eternal life. Can I say that again? Eternal life doesn't come to those who've changed enough. Change comes to those who've been given eternal life. It is a hope that we already have. Indeed, it's a hope we can be confident of. And the language of hope here is not that vague sense of longing that we have when we talk about hope. You know, that kind of, I hope it doesn't rain, which I actually do hope it doesn't rain. I'm not really prepared for it to rain. Uh, I hope I win the lottery. I do sort of hope I win the lottery, but I'm not expecting it. I never buy lottery tickets. It's not very likely. Uh, Cross your fingers and hope for the best. That sort of hope, that's what we mean by hope. The Bible writers didn't hope with crossed fingers. Their hope was one of certain expectation. The anticipation now of something that will come in the future. The hope of eternal life was the certainty Christians have that we will live forever. It's what we've been thinking about as we've looked at Philippians over the last few weeks, isn't it? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. We look forward to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We await a saviour from heaven. In fact, we sang about it earlier. And that hope, that salvation, is the truth that comes up again and again in the book of Titus. We don't have time to see all the references, but we'll see them through this series. It is God's salvation, his free gift of eternal life, which Paul consistently uses to transform us, to motivate our transformed living. Not change in order to get this hope, but change because you have this hope. That's the truth that produces godliness. That's what fixes the world. Sometimes people talk about being so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. Have you heard that phrase before? It's a genuine question. It's hard for us to move our heads a bit. No, some people haven't. Some people have. There's a phrase. It's not a good one because it's not true. As though hoping in eternal life is going to stop us from being helpful. But I think actually as Christians we can sometimes think that this hope of eternal life is all about the future. Uh, That the Christian message is basically a bit meaningless for the moment. But in the end it will be really great news. Actually, the hope of eternal life will make a difference here on earth. It won't make us of no earthly use. It will transform us. In fact, if you want the world to be a better place for the next generation, then speaking about the hope of eternal life is the very best thing you can do. And yet how quickly we lose sight of this message. So often we make the message focused about some other earthly targets. We want to change now, so we focus on now instead of that hope. A few months ago, I was working with some students from other churches, and I asked them what they thought the message was that Jesus had given us to proclaim. Almost all of them said, love one another. Well, yeah, we want the world to be a better place. We do want people to love one another, but that means the message we're going to proclaim is about the hope of eternal life. Godliness will only grow in the soil of this gospel truth. Those flowers will only blossom if they are watered with the hope of eternal life. And maybe the reason we're nervous about focusing on eternal life is because it feels a bit airy-fairy. Can we really be sure? Is the hope of eternal life really something we can get behind? But it turns out the answer is yes. You probably expected me to say that, didn't you? But it is what Paul says, a point three on the handout, a ministry you can trust. 
And Paul goes on to give us a three-step confidence boost in verses two and three. Look down at verse two again with me. In hope of eternal life, he says, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Now, did you spot the three steps there? Firstly, it was promised by God who never lies. Don't you love that? It's one of my favorite bits of the whole Bible. God who never lies. Imagine it said something very slightly different, and you'll realize how good news it is. Imagine it said, God who rarely lies. That changes it somewhat, doesn't it? God who who generally doesn't lie, not good news. God who never lies. That is brilliant news, isn't it? Everything God promises he delivers. Be even more precious to creep, wouldn't it? Do you remember they were always liars in a place where lying was considered culturally acceptable. We might think that this hope of eternal life is just clickbait, a kind of manifesto promise to get you in and only then be broken. But God never lies. When he promises something, even something as remarkable as the hope of eternal life, he delivers. And we can be even more confident because his promise has now been manifested. And for a long time it was promised, but now, verse 3, at the proper time, i.e. now, God has manifested this promise in his words. Now, this hope of eternal life has been manifested, it's been revealed, it's appeared. Indeed, that language of appearing is going to come up a lot in the book. As Paul talks about the unveiling of God's promises in Jesus For all that God had promised it before, it's now been made known. It's on display. Christ Jesus, God our Savior, has stepped into the world. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die in our place so that we could be rescued, saved, forgiven, and promised a sure hope of eternal life. It's actually what we've been thinking about all evening, isn't it? Jesus is this truth. He stepped into the world and manifested the promises of God. You were always able to take God at his word. He never lies. But now, what Paul calls the proper time, whatever was hidden has been brought into the open. You can look at the person of Jesus and see God's promises come to light. Even if God wanted to back out now, he doesn't, he won't. But even if he did want to, he can't. It's a done deal. Eternal life was promised and has now been manifested in Jesus. And just in case we fear that leaves us in the lurch because we come so long after Jesus, just in case we fear that leaves us in the lurch because we can't see him, Paul goes on to show how his role continues to give us access to this promise. Verse 3 again. And at the proper time manifested in his words through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. We can't see Jesus anymore. He's gone into heaven, but we still have access to God's revelation through the preaching of apostles like Paul. That's why verse 3 says that God manifested in his words. It's in the coming of Jesus that God's promises have been put on display, but it is through the gospel word that these promises are manifested for subsequent generations. And God has entrusted that word to Paul. If you're around, a couple of years ago, we were looking at the beginning of Acts, and we saw that bit from Acts uh, 9. Was it last year? At some point recently, we looked at the bit when, um, when Paul was commissioned, when, as he puts it here, he was commanded by God our Savior 
to take out that gospel. You can check out the link on the handout later if you want to listen to a talk on that passage. But now, much later in his ministry, Paul is writing to Titus and doing a kind of callback to that moment to give us confidence in this ministry. It was promised, it was manifested, and it's been entrusted to Paul. Which, of course, makes this paragraph actually mainly about Paul. I've been speaking throughout this talk as though this is the ministry that's been given to all of us, but actually it's specifically about Paul, isn't it? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. At end of verse 3, the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. This is actually a validation of his ministry. It's about the gospel work that was entrusted to him. Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul, and God has told me how to fix the world. But that doesn't make it any less relevant to us here in this room. It simply clarifies that if we want to be a church that changes the world, we should seek to follow in the footsteps of Paul. We should, like Titus, seek to be those who are true children in a common faith, verse 4. We should engage in this trustworthy ministry of truth, of hope. Because as we do so, we're engaged in God-commissioned, world-transforming work. And some of you might be thinking, well, Tim, that's what you've got to do. You work for the church. Uh, This is a job description for church leaders. You've kind of told us that already. It might be relevant to you, but not to me. But actually, as I said earlier, this is a job description that all of us need to hear. We all need to know what the church should be doing, partly so that you can make sure I do my job properly, but actually because it has huge implications on you. Some of us might be just arriving in London thinking about what sort of church you're going to commit to. Well, this job description is essential for making that decision, isn't it? Don't you want a church that is engaging in God-commissioned, world-transforming work? Well, here is the sort of thing it should be committed to. A ministry of truth, a ministry of hope. Others of you are moving on from London. I'm aware that this is Mike Burden's last Sunday after 16 and a half years with us. Others are moving on as well. What church are you going to move to? Well, wherever you move, make sure it is a ministry that attends to these words, that is committed to this gospel word that God entrusted to Paul. And even those of us who aren't moving on, which I hope is most of us, I'm expecting you guys to still be around in September. It won't just be me and Luke. But I hope that we see this has a huge implication on the ministry we will be about together. It's not just the Tituses of the world that proclaim this gospel word. Indeed, as we'll see later in this series, there's lots of ways that we all engage in this work. And so this is a paragraph that validates the different ways that we are partnering in gospel work together. Uh, One of the guys on student night sent me a message this week about reading Mark one-to-one with a friend of his. And I was thrilled, thrilled because as he takes out this gospel word, he's engaged in God-commissioned, world-transforming work. As you talk about the hope of eternal life with friends and, and colleagues and course mates, as you chat with neighbors, as you present the truth about Jesus, this hope of eternal life, God's promise made manifest, when you do that in the same way that Paul did, 
where you are engaging in God-commissioned, world-transforming ministry. Think about what else you could devote yourself to instead. Imagine you actually did work in Parliament and had involvement in all of the big decisions that are being made there to affect UK policy and establish laws. I'm sure that lots of good work is done there to try and make this country a better place. But they cannot fix the world. That amendment from the Archbishop was months in the making. If you've seen the news over the last few months, you might have seen its progress. But when it was sent back to the House of Commons this week, it was dismissed. For all of the effort that was put into it, all of the planning and preparation, it was defeated. And laws are like that, aren't they? Even if it had been established, it could then be overturned. It could be ignored. Laws can sometimes restrain evil, and we can praise God for that. But you cannot legislate for godliness. But as you communicate the gospel words in your office or in your classroom or in the pub, you have more power to effect genuine societal reform than the most high-powered people in government. Westminster is not the cutting edge of reforming society. We are. The church is. Not because there's anything special about us, but because there's something very special about his, God's gospel word, this ministry of truth, of hope. That's what leads to godliness. That's what changes the world. And I hope that's got you excited about reading more of this letter, seeing more of how Paul unpacks what this ministry looks like. I hope it's got you excited about gospel ministry, about speaking this truth to a world that desperately needs transforming. This is not a letter that was written to you, but it is a letter that is written for you. And isn't it a letter you want to read? Good afternoon, Titus. This is Paul. And God has told me how to fix the world. Well, as Luke said, even if you can't be here, please make sure you keep reading this letter. See what God has for us in these verses. And let me finish by leading us in a prayer. Father, we praise you that you are a God who never lies. Thank you that you have promised eternal life before the ages began and that you have now manifest that eternal life. That we can see it in Jesus that we receive it in this ministry that you gave to Paul and that you are working still through us today. Please, would you make us, those who continue this great work, and use us, we pray, to change the world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.